Jesus presents us always with a problem of the question of who is he? But behind that uh, question, that conundrum as to who is he and what's he doing and why is he and how does he relate to God and what do we make of him, who, who is he? Behind that question and that conundrum is another one. That is, how can you judge? On, on what is the basis of your assessment of who is he? How, how do you know he is who you think he is? And as his claims have got to do with being God, what kind of judgments can you make of God? That is, how do you judge God? I mean, I know how to judge school children doing arithmetic puzzles. I know how to judge cricketers. But how do you judge the Almighty? Who is Jesus and how do you judge him is a double conundrum that runs all the way through John's Gospel. And chapter 7, verse 24, is really captures the sense of what this chapter is about when Jesus challenges them and says, Stop judging by mere appearances and make right judgments. Chapter 6, I thought the verse that really caught up what it was all about was, Do not work, verse 27, for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. This chapter is about judgment, though. Stop judging by mere appearances. Make a right judgment. The kinds of judgments in the ancient uh, man would give are different to the modern ones. The ancient dilemma here is different to the modern. The ancient, you see, will judge him as being demon-possessed when they see a miracle that he does. Or they will say, well, it's a miracle, all right, but you did it on the wrong day of the week. You did it on the Sabbath. I don't think modern people pay much attention to those particular criteria of judgment. My uh, milkman calls in for his check every couple of weeks and uh, he is very big in miracles. He's always telling me about different miracles that are taking place that he reads up in all kinds of different magazines and places. He's all into astral travel and into out-of-body uh, experiences and out-of-mind experiences and, and auras that you can contain in little uh, boxes that the Russians know about and American destroyers all disappearing because of experimentations with unified field theories and all kinds of fascinating things of iridology and the rest so that every couple of weeks when he comes to my check and I stagger out of bed because he comes relatively early and I get half an hour of discussions on miracles. He never doubts miracles but he never sees them as demon possessed neither. He doesn't see them in those categories. He knows that Jesus did them because he believes in miracles but you see that's proof to him that Jesus really learnt from the from the Indians from the Jesus was a guru practicing yogi you see because he did miracles because that's where all miracles come from out of that kind of Eastern mysticism either that or he had tapped to modern Russian discoveries through astral body flight to another period of time you see and came back and how do you judge someone who goes around doing the things Jesus does you see the way in which my milkman does judges is quite different to the way in which many of your friends will Nearly all my friends, except for my milkman, judge Jesus differently. Jesus says, judge with right judgment. But how? How can I evaluate the evidence of Jesus? Well, first and foremost, you've got to look at the evidence. And that's, of course, what we're going to be doing in the next little while. That is, you can't just step back and evaluate the evidence. You've got to start looking at the evidence as well as evaluating it. Now, some people want to say, well, look, I'll spend all my time... Well, they won't say I'll spend all my time. They just say, look, how do you know that this document's the right document? And how, how do you interpret the document? And 
They're very reasonable questions to ask, but there's no point asking them if you're not going to read the document. And there's no way you can answer those questions until you have read the document. So you've got to start reading it to start with. Start reading the document, but also have in your mind about who is this Jesus and how do we know about him and how did John know about these things and did he record them accurately and have we got them today? Now then, Jesus is presented for us by John as being in the context of conflict in Jerusalem. A conflict between Jesus and the Jews as they are described. It starts back in chapter 5, this conflict, in verses 1 to 18, which we looked at in the first session, we're not going over again now, 1 to 18, when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath day, enables him to get up and walk. Now that, that healing has heightened the opposition that was already incipient in uh, Jerusalem concerning Jesus. The man had broken the law by carrying a stretcher on the, law, on the Sabbath. Jesus has broken the law by working on the Sabbath. And so Jesus discusses the matters with the Jews and he makes the extraordinary claim that he is only doing what God does because God works and he is continuing to work. And so we see the climax of that opposition in chapter 5 verses 16 to 18 where we read, Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. And for this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Here is the controversy that is out in Jerusalem, which is being referred to in chapter 7. Jesus' attitude to the Sabbath placed himself in the category of being God, and the Jews could not tolerate that. But chapter 6 shows us added difficulty. Apostasy and betrayal are found there. It's the feeding of the multitudes and the walking on the water, not in Jerusalem, elsewhere now, but towards the end of the chapter, it's not only the Jews who are finding difficulty with Jesus, it's Jesus' own disciples. Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, it's a hard teaching, who can accept it? And across in verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And verse 70, then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? And he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. That is, the followers of Jesus are finding that his commands, his call for total commitment, is really too much. Some, like Peter, are saying, no, we're sticking with you. We believe, verse 69, and know that you are the Holy One of God. But others are pulling back, turning away from him. And even those who go on, one of them is later to betray him. So as chapter 7 opens, we shouldn't be surprised to see a continuation of persecution and division and hatred mixed in with following him in faith and commitment. Just uh, look through it quickly with me in chapter 7 and, and see the way in which it uh, is continuing to be persecution and the like. In verse 5 we read that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. In verse 7 Jesus says, The world cannot hate you but it hates me. In verses 11 to 13 we see the mix-up that's taking place in Jerusalem. Now the feast of the Jews were, were, feast, sorry, at the feast the Jews were watching for him and asking, Where is that man? And among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Or in verses 19 to 20, Jesus talks about people being trying to kill me. The crowds say, oh, no, you, you, that's not right, you're demon-possessed. We wouldn't say that, we'd say, you're paranoid. 
But uh, that's just the difference of, of ancient men and modern men and their perceptions of demons and their perceptions of psychiatric illness. But either way, you see, the crowds are not accepting it, yet some of them do accept it because you see down in verse 25, they know that some, some people in Jerusalem know that they are trying to kill him. And they're asking, if they're letting him go, does that mean that the authorities now recognise that he's the Christ? Couldn't be, they say. No, no, it's not. In verses 30 to 32, you see that the, the, chief, the Pharisees are actually sending out to arrest him and seize him. And so the temple guards are looking for him. In verses 40 to 43, you see the people are confused. Some think he's the prophet. Some think he's the Christ. Some say, no, he's, he's neither of those. So that he concludes thus, verse 43, the people were divided because of Jesus. In verses 40 to 52, we see that when the attempt to arrest Jesus has failed, there is division and hostility even within the council. That is, here is the context of Jesus in Jerusalem, a context of controversy, of widely differing viewpoints and opinions, of people being set in opposition to each other in their assessment of who is this man. And notice the wide range of the disputants, disputants in, this, in this controversy. There is the family in verses 1 to 9, his brothers, who have got one kind of view of him and who are arguing with him. There are the Jews, as they are described in verses 11, 13 and 15, who are closely allied to the authorities in verse 26. And they are differentiated from the crowds in verse 20. That is, at this time, the word Jew, while it could refer to all the people of Israel, referred particularly to those who lived in Judea and Jerusalem, Judea the area just around Jerusalem. They particularly were the Jews. There were Israelites all over the ancient world. Alexandria, the capital of Israel, was a great centre of Israelites. Many, many thousands lived there. And at the time of the feast, the Israelites from all over the world would come to Jerusalem, come to Judea. And the distinction between the Jews who lived there and the pilgrims who came was very sharply drawn, especially by the locals who were running all the tourist shops at the time and fleecing those who came for the great pilgrimage. And Jerusalem could quadruple its population during the time of a feast. And so you see why it is that there's this confusion between some people knowing about the death of Jesus but the crowds not knowing about the death of Jesus and people saying, who is he and, and what's he about? And some saying, well, he's a good person but don't say too much because the locals don't like him. And this scene of controversy, of confusion, is taking place in Jerusalem with all these different disputants amongst the, and arguers amongst the crowds and there's the temple guards and there's the Pharisees and... That is, we tend to look back and say, well, the Jews were the Jews. They were just a monochrome group. But that's not like it at all. There are all kinds of different factions and parties in Jerusalem at the time of a feast. And it was vastly overpopulated at the time of a feast. And Jesus was there in amongst the crowd. I get a little bit confused about it, you see, because you tend to think, well, everyone would know Jesus was there. But you see, in chapter 7, Jesus comes up secretly and can, can mix in with the crowd and no one knows who he is. Remember, they didn't have television each night shining the face up of the late, latest kind of public figure. So you can't know, and, and he's not like the Hollywood presents him to be. You know those Hollywood movies where Jesus comes in, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, in sparkling white gowns, whiter than white, Omo white gowns, and as he walks through the crowd, everyone falls back in <gasps> amazement kind of thing. Well, Jesus actually didn't look anything like that. He was a Jew looking like all the other Jews who were there at Jerusalem during the great Jewish festival. And he could mix and mill in amongst them and people couldn't find him and couldn't seize him because the crowds were everywhere at this kind of time. And he was there secretly and the buzz was going all around. Is, is he coming up or isn't he coming back? What's happening? Who is this bloke? that is taking place. However, lurking in the background is the seriousness of the controversy. 
In the background is the question of Jesus' death. Death is part of the scene. You see, the stakes are very high. It's not like the kind of controversy that takes place around, around Sydney, around New South Wales, around Australia. I mean, what happens in a, in a public debate at the moment? You, you, you get a drop in your ratings in the current affairs program if you don't have the right kind of personality on. Or you, you might get dismissed from the cabinet in New South Wales, but it seems that half New South Wales have been dismissed from that sometime or other, so that's no big deal. Or you, you, you might get beaten at the next general election, or, or you, you might fail in promotion in, your, in, in the regard of your community if you've published findings that others... I mean, not much really happens, but... With Jesus, this controversy is a life and death controversy. Throughout the chapter, there is this lurking thing of death. Verse 1, the Jews were waiting to take his life. In verse 8, it's not the right time for Jesus, as you see in verse 30, the right time, the destiny that Jesus is heading towards, namely his death. But it's there in the background that he has that time. In verse 10, he goes up in secret. In verse 19, he talks about them trying to kill him, as indeed the crowd does in verse 25. In verse 32, it's sure enough, they're out to arrest him and to seize him. And they've already condemned him before they've even got hold of him, as you can see in their attitude towards Nicodemus, down in verse 50, 51 and the like. Now, Jesus' death, and don't let the fact that you know how the story ends desensitise you to the kind of rising climax that is taking place here. You see, most of you have got, most of you do know, don't you, he was killed, right? I mean, that's a fairly common piece of knowledge. And most of you know it happened in Jerusalem at a feast, you see. And so, you know, here he comes up for a feast. Well, we know he's not going to get killed at this one because we've read the last page. If you've read the last page, you don't have to worry too much what's going to happen to the hero en route. But if you were there in the first place, this indeed could have been the moment when he was to be killed. The adrenaline would be pumping. The controversy was very great, for death is there. So then, in this context of conflict, we're to pose the double conundrum of who is Jesus and how do you judge him? I'm going to do it back to front. How are we going to judge him? Because judgment is what the chapter is about. And there are six different criterion, or criteria if there's six of them, of judgment that you see put forward in this chapter, some of which are reflected in modern society, some of which aren't. Let me run through them fairly quickly here. The first one is, of course, miracles. Some judge Jesus by his miracles. You can see from my milkman that people today will judge Jesus by miracles, but you see, as a judgment, it's a very hard one. It's a very hard criterion because, you see, my dear friend the milkman, he thinks that because Jesus does miracles that he's in touch with the Russians and the Hindus. Right? That's a different judgment than the one you're expecting. Some of your friends will say, well, we know he's a charlatan and a trickster and he's a fraud because miracles don't happen. What happened here? Verses 3 to 4, you see the brothers judge Jesus on the basis of miracles. They say, we know you want to become a public figure. Jesus didn't. But they, they perception of miracles were those people who did them were wonder workers, were famous people. They actually gathered crowds around them and became important in the community because they were the wonder workers and Jesus was clearly a miracle worker, a wonder worker, and so they said, you must come up to the feast. You've got to actually show your tricks. You must do it publicly. Notice verse 5 says, because they didn't believe in him. Not they didn't believe he could do the miracles. Oh, they knew he could do the miracles. They didn't believe in him. They believed him to be a wonder worker, but that's not who he was. They believed him someone that wanted to become a public figure. That's not who he was or what he was coming to do. They didn't actually believe in him. They just believed in miracles. That's what they believed in. Or again, the crowd is astonished by the one miracle. It's very natural. Anyone who does miracles gets astonishment. Everyone wonders what an enormous thing to do. What an incredible thing to do. But 
Their judgment about miracles has to do with the Sabbath law, which we'll come to in a moment. Some of the crowd in verse 31 actually believe in him because they say he's done so many miracles, the Messiah, when he turns up, couldn't do any more. This bloke's worth following. That's the same kind of unbelief of the brothers. They've believed in him, but not properly. It's one of the themes that keeps running through John's Gospel. They believe in him for the wrong reasons. They've got the right thing, but the wrong, the wrong label, the wrong name, the wrong title, the wrong idea. They've got the right man, but they've got the wrong idea as to what the man is about. And so instead of seeing him as God's son sent into the world to save the world, they see him as the latest in the long list of Ripley's Believe It or Not or It's Incredible or whatever is the current fashion in that kind of show that can make your sponsors a lot of money. That's what they see him as. And that is to misperceive him totally. Then there are those with the Sabbath law. Another way of judging him, you see, was to say, okay, if he's, if he's the Christ, he should fulfill the law. Now we know he hasn't fulfilled the law because he did the miracle on the Sabbath, verses 21 to 23, you see this little argument. But Jesus says, no, you haven't understood the law properly. That's his answer to that. Because if you remember in the law, you're not to work on the Sabbath day, but you people circumcised on the eighth day of every child. And if the eighth day happens to be the Sabbath, you will still circumcise the child. That is, you're willing to operate on the Sabbath day. Well, all I was doing was operating on the Sabbath day. That's quite common, you see. I mean, you, you, your law itself says that the Sabbath law is not the ultimate absolute law. There are other laws that take precedence over it. Circumcision, for example, takes precedence over it. Well, if, if a small surgical operation takes precedence over, how much more the healing of a whole man should take precedence over the Sabbath law? And so the judgment... He says, you're judging by appearances rather than by the truth. Now, it's a very common fault. That's the context of the verse that I draw your attention to, verse 24. It's a very easy mistake, you see. Law-keeping has a great capacity for appearing to be right. The people judge religious truth on the basis of law-abiding, institutional righteousness. So they actually perceive, and you see it very frequently, they actually expect that people who are bishops, living in Gothic architecture with academic qualifications and respectability, will be people who have got the truth. Whereas by and large those kinds of people are godless and do not know the gospel when they fall over it. If they do, they're not only godless but wicked as well because they don't believe the gospel. They'll get themselves consecrated as bishops to defend the gospel that they themselves don't believe in and are the chief attackers of it. But they've got all the respectability going for them. They've got all the law. They, they, they read the book perfectly with the best pucker English accent and never leave out a jot or a tittle and get all the these and thous right in the right places. But they just happen to be godless. See, law-keeping has that tremendous capacity for hypocrisy which Jesus so frequently attacks in the Pharisees, but which people still get conned by. Now, this idea of judging Jesus by the law you see again reflected in verse 49, but they themselves, those who want to judge the law by the law, don't keep the law. Verse 19 makes the point, verse 51 makes the point out of Nicodemus's mouth, that they are actually not obeying the law, they're condemning the man without a hearing, which is against the law. They are breaking the law of the Sabbath themselves with their circumcision, yet they want to judge someone else by the law. If you're going to judge by the law, make sure you obey the law that you're judging others by. He who points the finger at somebody else points three back at himself. It's the habit of pointing, isn't it? I understand that's China is not biblical. Now, the third qualification 
The third criterion is qualifications, verses 15 and 16. They say, favourite verse of all students, this one, where did this man get such learning without having studied? <laughs> now, if you could get the answer to that one, you would be very wealthy, wouldn't you? Degrees would flow. Where does it come from? Jesus answers very clearly, from God. But it's still a very common question today, you see. People are not interested in what you know and what you can do. They are interested in where you get your degree from and which degree you have. That is more important than what you know and what you can do. So the, the public comment of academics that, get, that you hear on the radio and the newspapers, which have got nothing to do with their qualifications. The biochemist who gives you advice on politics. The, uh, the, the lawyer who gives you advice on psychology. It doesn't matter. Because he's got a professor in front of his name, he is quotable. He is worth speaking on the subject. And of course the architect who can speak on everything. Now, you get it also in the, in the, in the commercials, don't you? You get irritated by it, I'm sure, when it says, university tests prove. It doesn't matter what you say after that, it must be right, mustn't it? If university tests prove it. You get it in undergraduates who write essays and put footnotes down the bottom in the hope that, seeing the argument is weak, the footnotes will convince. That is the way in which we do it. And you can see the really insecure undergraduate because it's nearly all footnotes with just a couple of lines of sentence that if someone else has said it somewhere else, a marvellous cartoon was in one of the university papers here some few years ago now of, of this, this, this little man who had got this machine, one of those cartoony kinds of machines with junk everywhere all kind of attached up and he was pouring in nails and things like that at one end and going through the whole system and then coming out the other end were humans. Marvellous. And, and there's this academic man standing behind him, academic, because he's in his gown and all the rest, saying... Well, Jones, it's a pity you haven't got your bachelor's degree because that could be worthy of a PhD. <laughs> it's not what you do, it's where you've got your information, it's where you've got your qualifications from that counts. Now, Jesus says, I've got my teaching from God. Now, that gives the New South Wales Department of Higher Education Board a great problem in determining whether the qualifications are good enough to get a degree on. Because how do you assess God? That's the that's the conundrum Jesus keeps posing for you. Judge me by the truth of what is being said. Public acceptance is another criterion, closely related to that one, of course. But you see it down in verses 25 and 26. They say, he's out there teaching publicly the authorities. Well, the authorities must be accepting him now. If the authorities are accepting him, well, maybe it's true. If there's public acceptance, then somehow it's true. I mean, this is what lies behind the whole idea of, of, of people believing what's on the media. I mean, you know and I know and everybody knows that you don't believe what you read in newspapers. And of course, if you ever investigate the uh, community, you'll find out everybody does. If it's in the newspaper, it must be true. If it's on the television, it's undoubtedly true. I saw it with my own eyes. Mind you, it was all cut around by the editors and seen from an angle where no one else had been. But I saw it, so it must be true. It happened. It's been on the media. They wouldn't let that kind of thing go on the media if it was untrue. Now, at one level, in your mind you can say, oh, it's not like that at all. The media's full of lies. It's full of untruths. But at the other level, people believe it if it's on the media. These are the facts of life. That is the case community has an enormous acceptance and respectability runs in the same thing you see why are so many heretics clergymen very simple really because it's only ordained heretics who ever get listened to if you're not a clergyman who's going to listen to you but well, once you're a clergyman they'll listen to you 
And so it's essential to get the public acceptance to say nutty things. Or again, you see it in the majority rules. You get it in all kinds of textbooks and learned journals and the rest. It, it, it's a marvellous thing. You see. The majority of today's, whatever it is, biochemists believe, well, fat deal, the majority believes, so what? Huh? Or scholars today think, by which is meant the majority of scholars today, or the significant scholars, or the scholars who agree with me anyway, think. Huh? I mean, that's no argument at all, isn't it? I mean, all the scholars of the world used to think that the world was flat. That was a, a total majority. But it was wrong, wasn't it? But you will see over and over again this appeal to the, the greater bulk of weight of evidence. The weight of evidence? No, the weight of opinion. The weight of today's opinion is different to tomorrow's. Now, that is, of course, Christians feel about Christianity very frequently, don't we? You see, intelligent people today have rejected Christianity. And you go, oh dear, well, how can I still be an intelligent person today and accept it? I mean, that's a very powerful argument, isn't it? Well, it's not. But it's that kind of feeling by which people are judging Jesus here. In reverse, this time they're saying, well, he's, he's allowed to preach, so he must be telling the truth. Jesus gives you the criterion, the one criterion. And it's a funny one because it's unlike all the others. Instead of focusing upon Jesus, it focuses on you. Instead of focusing on the observed, it focuses on the observer. It's in verse 17. He says, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. The criterion is very different, says Jesus. I am speaking God's word. You doubt that it's God's word. Well, if you seek to live in obedience to God's word, you will know whether what I'm saying is the truth or not. Now friends, that must be right, actually. You see, if you're living in opposition to God, then you will reject God's word. And then you will reject Jesus who is God's word. That's how John describes him in the first place. Whereas if you are living to seek to do what God wants, then you will accept whatever God says. Then you would accept Jesus, who comes as God's word. That's the argument Jesus is using. If I am God's word, then those of you who seek to live according to God's word will recognise me. And those of you who seek to live in opposition to God won't recognise me. So the problem really lies not in me, but in you. That's where the problem lies. And that is always the case, you see. There are these people who want to stand back in, in some kind of splendid detachment, whereby through unprejudiced objectivity, they will be able to evaluate something as fundamental as God. It's not like that. If your life is lived in opposition to God then when God's Son comes into the world, you will oppose him. And if your life is lived seeking to be obedient to God, when God's Son comes into the world, you'll accept him. Now, what do you want to make of Jesus? Well, what you make of Jesus may well reflect more about you than about Jesus, about your desire to live in obedience to God or not. 
Friends, it also has to be like that. I've got one more point before you go out of the page. I can hear them fluttering. One more page, a very important one. You've got to grasp hold of. But it's the only way of stopping you being God. You see, the very idea of me sitting in judgment on God is ludicrous. God is the judge. If anyone's going to be in the dock, it's me, not him. Now, as long as I think that I can come up with some criterion by which I can judge God, I am putting myself on the bench and I'm saying, God, you are at my disposal. I'm going to choose whether I believe in you or not. In other words, I am God and you are not. God must be on the bench. What's more important than Philip's attitude to God is God's attitude to Philip. That's fundamentally more important. And that's what Jesus does to you. He reverses the tables on you. He says, you're all very keen to judge me. Well, let me tell you, it's what God thinks of you. He says, it's your relationship with God which will enable you to even understand what I'm talking about or not. If you're already rejecting God, then nothing I say will make sense. But if you're already in a right relationship with God, then you'll know that what I'm saying does make sense. So the real criterion is not out there in me, it's, it's in you. Reflect on it sometime. What is Jesus saying? He's making certain claims. Now we go to the page. We can all do it together. He's making certain claims about his life, about himself about where he's come from and where he's going to and with what effect for the rest of us. Notice what he's saying about himself and where he comes from. It's, it's throughout the chapter, verses 16 to 18, my teaching comes from him who sent me, from God. The rabbis weren't interested in novelty, they were interested in authority. Jesus' authority is that he was sent by God. His source is very important. Now, of course, they were saying he can't be the Christ in verses 28 and 29 because we know his source, we know where he comes from. And Jesus says with great irony, you know where I come from? Yes, you know where I come from, but you don't really at all. You see, I come from God. You think you know where I come from, but you don't. You want to judge me from where I come from, that's the right way to judge me, but of course where I come from is from where you don't know, namely God. If you knew God, you'd know where I come from. The fact that you don't know God is your very problem. That's why you can't know who I am, because you don't know God. For he is the one who sent me. That is, Jesus in his claim puts us constantly into conflict about himself. Is he from God or is he not? You see, if he is from God, then we must accept him. For if we reject him, we'll be rejecting God. He constantly puts us in that conflict. Notice also he speaks of his destination in verses 33 and 34. He is going to God. He's going back to the one who sent him. He's going where, where uh, he is going, where they cannot come. Only in a short time is he to be here, and you will not be able to find me. He says, in verse thirty-two, they try and arrest me to hang on to him, but they can't because he's going away. You can't actually put Jesus and hold him. He is in control. They are not. Now they're very confused. They don't know where he's going. What's this going away routine? He's speaking about his death, but it's not explained yet. And then notice also the effect. Jesus' claim lies in, its, in, in the effect of his short mission. He's come from God and he's going to God. Why has he come? Why is he going? Well, it's picked up in verses 37 to 39 on the great feast. The last day of the feast. The feast of the tabernacles was an agricultural feast, celebrating the harvest, 
praying for more rain for the future. And each day the uh, priests would go to the well and draw water and then symbolically pour water out just near the, uh, the, the altar. And it was uh, thanking God for the rains and praying for more. For Israel, uh, climatically, is of course just on the margin of having sufficient rains. It's always a matter of, 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 of drought one year, floods the next, like kind of western New South Wales. So, this was their great feast. Jesus on the last day comes out in the open, cries out in a loud voice so they'll all hear, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You want water? I'll give you water. But the water I give is different. Whoever believes in me will receive water, such water, such water of life, that they themselves will become a source of water in the future. They will receive life which will flow out from within them. What's he talking about? John explains to us in verse 39. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. He wasn't talking about water at all. Now that's a fairly easy leap to take because the whole thing was a religious ceremony and water was used as a symbol of the whole harvest and it was also used as a symbol of salvation. And Isaiah 12 talks about them drawing the waters of salvation. Jesus is saying, well, I am the source of the water of life. I am the source of life. Living water comes from me. If you want to live, come to me. For I will pour out the Holy Spirit upon you and you will live. He was talking in the future. For as John says, he doesn't pour out the Spirit until after he is glorified. That is, until after he's died and risen again. And of course we see it in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 where he pours out his spirit upon people that they might come to new life, that they might be born again as he tells Nicodemus in, back in chapter 3. Jesus is the one who gives life, real life, life that will satisfy thirst forever. Here is the effect of what he is saying. It is an incredible claim that Jesus is making. He made it back in chapter 4 with a woman at the well. He makes it in chapter 6 with the bread of life that he is speaking of, that he is the source of life. Without him, you're dead. Without him, you do not live. But with him, you come to life, a life that spreads beyond yourself. That is, the claims of Jesus run on two tracks. One is truth, the other is relevance. It runs on the track of who is he? True or false that he is God? Who is he? But you might say, well, all right, I know it's true. He's God, I can say that, but so what? Big deal. But that's not the case. He also says, and I come to give life, and without me you do not live. In other words, it's relevant to us. Which brings me to the last section there, Jesus and us. For John confronts us with Jesus, and with this double puzzle of how to make judgments about him and who is he. Firstly, we're challenged to make right judgments. On what basis do you assess Christ? From the bench? As the judge? Is that the position from which you are seeking to make your assessment? With that superior godlike detachment by which you can be able to dispatch him through your superior intellectual capacities? That's not the way you can find out about God, Jesus. It's got to do with seeking to do God's will. If you do not want God, you will not find Jesus to be God. If you don't want God running your life, rest assured you will never find Jesus to be God. You'll always find him unsatisfactory. Because you have already made up in your mind and your heart the rejection of God. 
and therefore the rejection of Jesus. But notice the promise of verse 17. If anyone chooses to do the will of God, they will find Jesus to be true. There is the promise. Seek and you will find. But your seeking must be a genuine seeking, a seeking that wants to find God, that you might do what God says, and you will find. You've got to make right judgments, not judgments based upon appearances, but right judgments. Secondly, the judgments you're making are not just about true and false, they're about life itself. Because what Jesus says is, are you thirsty? Are you still striving and struggling for water that spoils, for food that spoils, as he puts it last week in chapter 6? Are you going through the motions of physical activity, but yet in fact not alive? Physically alive, yes, eating and drinking, yes, but always thirsty and always hungry, always dissatisfied, always longing for more and looking for more, always trying to find where life is on, but never really there because we're dead, because we're spiritually lost and unsatisfied and longing to find out what it's all about and where we're going and why we're here and what life is. Are you thirsty for life itself? For Jesus' invitation is for you to come to him because he offers more life than your body can handle. You'll become a source of life under him that will bubble out to other people as well. Is that how you experience life to the full? If you're still thirsty, come to Jesus. Notice the two things. One, it's a matter of truth. And the other, it's a matter of relevance. But if you don't want to do the will of God, you won't want Jesus. If you do want to do the will of God, coming to him, you'll recognize him to be true. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your Son. Thank you that you sent him into the world, that you took him back to yourself, raising him up from the dead, that he should die for us and pour out his Spirit that we might come to life. Help us, Father, by your Spirit to wish to do your will, that we might find Jesus as true and to gain the effect that he won for us, namely new life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.